So we reach Job 42, beginning in verse 7 through the end of the book, 17. Job 42, verses 7 through 17, give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. Job 42, beginning in verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams, and go to my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job shall pray for you. I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what, did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, a thousand yoke of oxen, and a thousand female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of his first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second was Kezia, and the name of the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. After this, Job lived a hundred and forty years, and he saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So over the last handful of, year, handful of years or so, a fad has been going around. And this is not a designer fad, which might be cute or annoying, but it's more grim. This is the fad of canceling. Someone says or does something a bit off-color, or that is not politically correct, and an online mob ruins them. Their name and reputation are turned into trash, they lose their job and livelihood, and the cancel one is condemned to endless apologies with no option for forgiveness. Now, council culture feels quite modern as it's driven online, but in reality, it isn't so different from the honor-shame culture of the Dark Ages. Moreover, it's not unusual for the accusations to turn out to be false. A person is charged and canceled, and then the charges are proven groundless, and yet the damage is done. The employer won't hire you back. The stains on your reputation you cannot erase from the Internet. Thus, how do you recover from being canceled? Well, socially, this is the plight 
that Job also faces. And our God has a solution that only he can provide. So, the ordeal is done. The long debate has been resolved, for the Lord has spoken, and Job has been comforted for his agony in dust and ashes. Yet this resolution is a bit like a dinner party. The dinner's finished, but there's still the cleanup. Job is comforted, but he is yet homeless, living in the trash dump. Some, uh, surely there needs to be some care of Job's body to match the soul care that Job has already received. Thus the Lord speaks up again. He addresses Job to assuage his heart, and now he delivers a word to the friends. The Lord speaks to Eliphaz as a representative of the other two. And he isn't happy. The Lord's wrath burns against the three counselors. If we had any doubt what God thought of the words of the three amigos, it is dispelled here. The Lord was not pleased with the friends and their many words. He's angry with them for their inapt and bad advice. As he says... They did not speak rightly about the Lord. Their speeches were not accurate, correct, or faithful about God. And the Lord's disapproval of the friends comes with a comparison, as did my servant Job. So the friends spoke badly about God, but Job spoke well of the Lord. Indeed, to call Job my servant is a high and honorable office. In Scripture, my servant is reserved for intimate officials of Yahweh, like Moses, David, and the servant of the Lord in Isaiah. The Lord is delighted with his friend Job and his truth-speaking, but he's mad at the untruthful words of the three. Yet how did the friends speak poorly? What did they say that was so off, so inaccurate? Likewise, How did Job speak truthfully of God? So much has been said, how can we discern between the good and the bad? Well, if you go back over the speeches of the friends, several inaccuracies float to the surface. First, each of them claimed in one way or another to be wise and to be speaking for God. They postured themselves as the Lord's spokesmen. Thus, as you'll remember, Eliphaz claimed to have a night vision from God, Zophar bragged being inspired by God's spirit, and Bildad said the tradition of the elders was with him. Moreover, all of them offered the Lord's restoration to Job if he would just repent from his sin. Now, it's bad to speak falsely, but it's even worse to utter such falsehood in the name of Yahweh. There's foul-smelling pride behind claims to speak for the Lord. Secondly, the friends beat the drum of simplistic retribution, read backwards as a dogmatic interpretation of why Job was suffering. They played the same tune over and over. Job, you are suffering, which means you sinned, so just repent and deliverance will be yours. Yet the problem with this isn't that God doesn't employ retribution in some ways, but it's the insistence that this is the only method of providence. 
the friends used retribution to explain all of God's dealings with humans. But if retribution is the sum total of the Lord's ways with us, then it reduces the covenant relationship down to economics, a crude quid pro quo. We serve the Lord for the blessings he pays us. And yet, as you'll remember, this was the argument of the accuser in chapter 1. He charged Job for loving God only for his money. And the Satan accused the Lord of having to pay humans off for their devotion. Thus, by their simplistic retribution, the friends ended up on Team Satan. Third, the friends erred by relentlessly condemning Job. They denounced Job for his past sins. Eliphaz said that Job's wickedness was great. His iniquities had no limit. Bildad remarked how Job's kids died because they sinned. Yeah, Bildad actually said that. And they literally made up crimes against Job. They were lying witnesses. Also, the friends cruelly rebuked Job as a loquacious fool. They colored all his lamentation as heinous crimes. Job was crying in pain and sorrow, which they told him that his tears were sinful. Eliphaz said about Job that he broke the fear of the Lord. Zophar called him a hollow-headed rebel. In Matthew it says, Blessed are those who mourn. But the friends flogged Job with a stoic whip. Sinful are those who weep. Finally, the friends spoke falsely by not speaking to God. If you comb through their words, you cannot find a single address to God. They never refer to the Lord with a second person singular, you. The Migos did not pray, did not speak to God or ask him for help or aid. Job was constantly praying to God, but not the friends even once. Therefore, in all these ways and more, the friends did not speak truthfully about the Lord. And in this, we should be warned. We ought not to speak as did the friends. Our comforting of others should not take a page from the three. And yet, if this is how the friend spoke poorly, how did Job speak correctly? Well, we should not understand this commendation of Job as if there are no mistakes in his speeches. Indeed, it was pointed out that there were a few, as Job claimed to do justice better than God, and as he proudly subpoenaed the Lord. And yet, overall, Job's reasoning as a whole was sound. How? Well, one, Job was honest about his pain. He let his feelings and agonies flow like water, guided by the undying commitment of Yahweh's sovereignty. Job's faith knew that he didn't have to self-censor with stoicism, but that he trusted that he could be completely honest with God. Two, Job rightly preached that God's providence is much more diverse and mysterious than retribution. He knew better than to try to shove God into the box of retribution. 
Third, Job never denied uh, the Lord as his God and as his reward. He sensed that his suffering was him being forsaken by God, and so Job so longed to be personally reconciled to the Lord. It wasn't about blessing to Job, but it was about the Lord himself and Job's covenant relationship with God. Finally, Job spoke and prayed to the Lord. He tipped his words with you, Lord. He went directly to the throne of the Father and cast all his cares and complaints at his feet. Job was not afraid that God is too sensitive for hard truth, for messy emotions. But Job was confident that Yahweh was big enough for unpleasant thoughts. Hence, much of Job's boldness in his words, we also find in the Psalms, in the prayers of Jesus, and so such honesty is for us as well. Sure, the few mistakes of Job reveals the limits for us, but those limits of impropriety are far out there. The arena of prayer and lamentations for us, lamentation for us is wide and broad. The Lord lets us speak to him freely. The boldness we have to approach the throne of God is well exhibited in Job for us. Moreover, the Lord's good pleasure in Job also comes out in that he appoints him to be the priestly mediator for the friends. The Lord condemns the false words of the friends, but he doesn't punish them. Instead, he orders the friends to sacrifice for forgiveness. And Job will oversee their sacrifices and pray for them. He will be the priest to intercede for God's pardon. Now, back in chapter 1, Job was the priest for his family, but now he's restored to this favored position. Again, this is high praise. Not only does the Lord declare that Job spoke truthfully, but the Lord will only unleash pardon through the prayers of Job. This is also very telling in that it was the friends who beat Job up. Job was the victim of their harsh counseling. Thus, the friends can only receive forgiveness through the man they abused. And Job must be loving to his abuser, abusers to intercede for them. Job wins mercy for the three who were so cruel to him. This signals both reconciliation with God and with one another. Job had to forgive the three, and he does it. Job's prayer accomplishes forgiveness from God and from him for the friends. Like the friends, we often are bad comforters, but the Lord's mercy is abundant. Additionally, it's by the prayer of Job that the Lord lifts his face. Now, literally, the Lord says here, he will lift Job's face. And to lift the face refers to social honor. A massive part of Job's agony was the social shame of being canceled. Society banished him as a shameful criminal. His friends disowned him. His extended family would have nothing to do with him. 
disgrace and shame nailed Job to the tree. Thus, for the Lord to approve of Job for complete reconciliation, this shame must be lifted. And just as social shame is very concrete with taunts and poverty, so social honor entails concretes. This, then, is why Job must be restored. The Lord restores Job's fortunes not as payment for his obedience. This restoration comes not because Job repented of his sins, as the friends predicted, but God does it out of love, love and to publish his good pleasure with Job. Society condemned Job as as one cursed of God, and so to relieve his suffering, the Lord turns this shame into honor. And this social rehabilitation comes particularly because Job prayed for the friends. As Job was merciful to them, so the Lord restored his fortune. And God's repairs of his reputations is an overflowing generosity. Note that the Lord gives everything back to Job at double the amount. And the first part of this double is relational. All of Job's brothers and sisters, his old friends, come back to Job to console and comfort him. Now, many of Job's loved ones died, but he yet had a large extended family and circle of friends. These all spat on him and disowned him in his sufferings, They would have nothing to do with Job, but now they return. The family and friends of Job come to him to show sympathy, to comfort him, and to give gifts. They hand him money and gold rings. Now such gifts admit that Job was right. They are restitution for poverty and shame that Job endured. The gifts are also charity uh, for Job to get back on his feet. The presence are confessions that these folk were wrong about Job. They erred grievously to abandon Job in a season of loss and torment. Again, we see how reconciliation with God includes reconciliation in our other relationships. When we sin against other people, we need the Lord's pardon, but we also need their forgiveness. Yet interesting, the family and friends' uh, restoration happens at Job's house. They eat with Job at his home. But isn't this kind of backwards? When you comfort the morning, aren't you supposed to host? You invite them over to your house? And yet here Job has to host the friends and family. Now sure, they gave him gifts, but Job paid for the hospitality. Why is this? Well, this reveals the headship and priestly office of Job again. Job is their mediator with God, and so they go to him. As Job shares a table with them, the magnanimity of God's grace is on full display. Job cannot disown those who mistreated him. He cannot punish them. Rather, Job must forgive as he has been forgiven The kindness the Lord showed to him, he must pass on to others. Through all all his lamenting, we saw Job be patient. But here in the end, we behold Job 
the merciful. The forgiving grace of God radiates through Job. Therefore, the Lord blesses his latter end more than his beginning. Yahweh restores Job's wealth double. He ends up with 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 pair of oxen, and 1,000 jennies. And these numbers are exactly double the amounts listed for Job back in chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord makes Job wealthy beyond belief. These are huge numbers. Job went from being a millionaire to having zero to now being a billionaire. Now, at times, we receive evil from the Lord. When we do, we should consider, pray, and lament. Yet at other times, the Lord pours out his generosity on us, which should move us to thanksgiving and praise. We should remember that our God is not stingy with us, but his kindness is rampant and overflowing. Also, the Lord doesn't just fill the barns of Job, but he grants him the pitter-patter of toddler feet. God graces his home with the laughter of kids. On the worst day ever, Job's ten kids died in the blink of an eye. But the Lord consoles Job with ten more kids, seven boys and three girls, just as before. Now, new kids cannot erase the wound of dead children completely. The scar of lost kids never goes away. But new babies are like a pain relief cream to turn the sharp agony of the scar into a dull ache. Changing nappies fills your minds with good thoughts to distract you from the bad ones. Now, no mention of Job's wife is given here. Is she still around? Did he get a new one? How did she give birth to another ten kids? And yet our curiosities are of no interest to the text. What is of interest to the text, though, are his daughters. The narrator takes the time to name his three girls. It honors the ladies by naming them. The sons get no such honor, but the girls do. His first girl is named Jemima, which means dove or little dove. Kezia means cassia or cinnamon flowers. Kezia is sugar and spice. Then there's Karen Hapuk, which means horn of mascara. In modern lingo, Karen means powder puff. These names, though, communicate value and beauty. These are the precious girls of Job whom he loves dearly more than his own soul. And Job's love is matched by God's, as these girls are gorgeous. There are no other women in the entire land that can match the beauty of Job's girls. They all tied for first for Miss Universe. And such elegant appearance exhibits the Lord's favor. In the Old Testament, beauty was a sign of God's blessing. Now, this is not a nod to vanity 
nor does it change the truth that virtue is vastly more important than appearance. But beauty is a kind gift of God's love. Heaven, then, smiles on these three women. Hence, Job grants them an equal status with their brothers. He gives them inheritance just as the boys. But this is not how it was normally done in the olden days. In the Old Testament, the boys inherited from their father, but not the girls. Women received their portion from their husbands when married. Job, though, does not do this. Instead, he treats his daughters as full equals. He writes them in his will with an equal share. Now, why he does this is not clear, but it's marvelous. The final details, though, on Job include his age and death. He lived another 140 years after his suffering. Now, we're not told how, Job, how, Job, how old Job was before his ordeal, but to tack on another 140 means he's got to be around 200 at his death. Then he got to see his kids to the fourth generation. Great-grandkids played at the foot of his hospice bed. Hence, Job died an old man and full of days. And this phrase communicates that Job died well and blessed. Indeed, this line matches exactly the deaths of Abraham and Isaac. Job is painted as a patriarch of the covenant. Abraham lived 175 years and Job was at least this age. Job died seeing his kids just as Isaac and Jacob did. And to image Job as a patriarch makes him a father of the faith. And for him to be a believing father of the covenant, this means Job testifies and speaks of the future realities of God's redemptive plan. Just as Abraham saw and spoke of Christ, so Job points to the new covenant in heaven. In fact, once we recognize Job as a father of faith, as a witness of future hopes, this makes greater sense of his restoration. Why does God pour a double restoration on Job? At first, this seems a bit like a cliche happy ending. Two fairy tale, he lived happily ever after. It seems to align with the simplistic retribution of the friend. What about those who suffer like Job and are never restored? Some parents have kids die and they cannot have other children. As a father of faith, though, Job's ending points much further ahead. His ideal conclusion directs us to heaven. Thus, Job is an example of what Paul tells us, that our present sufferings do not even compare to the glory ahead. Yes, God seasons our present life with shame, affliction, and grievous hardship. And yet the purpose for for such suffering is not to torment. The end of God's providence is not pain, but double blessing. As with Job, our seasons of sufferings are only for a time. Our hardship 
may last our entire lives, but our lifespans are brief compared to eternity. The good death of Job is a picture of your everlasting Sabbath rest. Moreover, in light of the new covenant, Job's inheritance for his girls becomes prophetic. In the New Testament, the inheritance of Christ is equally given to men and women, boys and girls. Baptism is better than circumcision as it is applied to girls along with the boys. Likewise, the priestly role of Job showcased Christ to us. Job was the victim. He suffered at the hands of the three friends. He was abandoned and scorned by his family. And and yet, these cruel folk only found forgiveness through Job. So also, our sins nailed Christ to the cross. Our depravities pierced his flesh. He endured the cross and all the pains of hell for us. Like the crowds, we too mocked and shamed Jesus on the cross in our sin. Nevertheless, as Jesus hung upon that tree, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The victim of our abusive sin is the very one that grants us pardon and redemption. Job's suffering was necessary to overthrow the accusations of Satan. Well, likewise, Jesus' agony was necessary to defeat the devil and to justify us by his righteousness. Job's story then is first not about us, but it is about Jesus and then our redemption in him. Once we see Christ through Job, then we come to understand our story. And key to our story is that Jesus died to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Christ shed his blood to make us holy and beautiful in him. Therefore, in Job, God gives us a spoiler alert. He gives away the ending. And an essential theme in Job has been why suffering. All the characters explored the meaning of providence. Why does God govern this world the way he does? Providence is mysterious, it's bizarre, and oftentimes it hurts like Sheol. What story is God writing with all this agony that we endure? Well, the book of Job does not answer this question. Job found comfort from the Lord by admitting his ignorance about God's almighty sovereignty. Nevertheless, even though the Lord does not tell us the middle of our story, he has published the end. Our Heavenly Father lets us read the last page of his grand novel, and it says, Jesus has won. Christ conquered to save you from sin and death. By the suffering of the Son of God, you receive pardon, grace, and mercy for an everlasting restoration. Now, 
we pass through the valley of the shadow of death. Presently we live under a veil of tears, but blessed are those who mourn, for you will be comforted. And the consolation of God is nothing less than the glory of new creation. Now our tears flow freely, but in the resurrection, the Father himself will drive your last tear. Let us then learn the patience of Job. At times mourning loudly, and other times sitting in silence. But always keeping our eyes upon our Savior, Christ, who is our life. And then may we ever rest in the love of Jesus, knowing that he is always with us, to hear our prayers, to listen to our tears through all the miseries of this life to keep us for glory forever. Thus praise the Lord for his eternal grace that he has shown you the end of your story. And though we do not know yet how we'll get there, the Lord has promised he will bring you home. And what the Lord promises, he never fails us. Amen. Let's pray.